What I would like to talk about tonight is living our truths. There's probably almost an uncountable number of experiences that it's possible to have in meditation. Altered states of consciousness, states of bliss, states of joy, states of pristine peace, states of Remarkable openings, visions, that's almost endless. The list of experiences that it's possible to have in meditation. Now, I feel the very positive side of these experiences that are available through practice is that they really inspire and encourage us. They really hearten us in a way to look at what is possible for us, to really have a sense of the, the dimensions of consciousness and the ways that that can really transform our lives and end suffering. Now that is the positive side of experiences. I feel the difficult side of experiences is that there is, I feel, such a a tendency in the spiritual life to measure depth and to measure progress by the number of experiences we've had or by the kind of insights that we've managed to attain. Sometimes we think that, you know, we're progressing if we're calm, we're progressing if we're quiet, and we're regressing if we're not. And retreats very much become associated with the achievements that are possible in meditation. The retreats can become, or even individuals' meditations, can become a kind of yardstick of progress or failure in our journey. How many times we find ourselves comparing the sitting that we're doing to the last sitting we had or if we're a real veteran of retreats, comparing one retreat to the last retreat we've had, to really look or to evaluate somehow if we are going deeper in our journey or if we're not. Based upon our comparisons, we do also tend to define ourselves, whether we are deeper, whether we are more superficial, whether we are getting anywhere, or whether we are failing. Now, it is actually impossible to measure depth in a spiritual journey. The conclusions and the measurements we have are often so unreal. The spiritual life can actually never be measured by the number of experiences or number of insights we have. Depth in the spiritual life can never be measured on the basis of quietness or on the presence or absence of difficulty. Depth in the spiritual life can never be measured by the highs or the lows that we find ourselves encountering. The only true measure of a spiritual life is our capacity to live it, to live in accord 
with what we sense to be true, to live in accord with what we value. I feel that depth in the spiritual life is really that point in our lives when our way of living becomes a visible expression of what we honor, what we hold to be true, what we hold to be authentic. When there's no separation between insight and our living of it, but more where there is a merging of wisdom and of action. In, uh, one time when I was in India, I visited uh, Rishik- Rishikesh in the mountains. And every year there, they used to have a kind of convention of sadhus or ascetics where all these sadhus from many different parts of India would come together to show what they'd done that year, what they could do. So they would have this street, you know, lined with these kind of uh, stalls. And, you know, in one stall there'd be somebody lying on a bed of thorns and a little sign, you know, saying that I've lain on a bed of thorns for five years, you know. And the next stall would be somebody standing and a little sign saying, I've never laid down to sleep in the last 15 years. And the next stall would have somebody you know, with a little sign saying he hadn't spoken in 25 years. And it would go on and on and on. And there was, it was kind of an exhibition of sadhus. And, and it was, you know, I was pretty impressed. It was pretty impressive, you know. I mean, I don't know if I could hang around on a bed of thorns for five years, even if I wanted to. But what was interesting at the end of the day is that people would come to serve food to the sadhus. And this bell would go at 6 o'clock. And suddenly these sadhus would come pouring out of their stalls and there'd be all this jostling and shoving to get first in line and pushing each other aside and knocking each other's balls over. And, you know, one really wondered what was going on. Is this what a spiritual life is all about? Having all these attainments to show, having all these achievements to show, and then being absolutely overwhelmed by the first smell of a meal into greed and pushing us. What a spiritual life is, I feel, it is a way of being where our insight and understanding is really making a difference. Where it's actually touching every level of our lives leading us to look at our livelihoods, our relationships, our choices, our directions, our speech and our actions. Truly the only way that we can ever have a sense of living a spiritual life is when our lives are an expression of what we understand to be true. I often feel there's a very sad cycle that goes on, that many of you have come on retreats and know this cycle, that we come on retreats and we feel that we deepen in clarity and deepen in openness and deepen in sensitivity. And it's all very true. We do feel that as in an experiential way. But then the thought comes, how am I going to maintain this? And the anxiety comes. How am I going to keep myself calm? How am I going to keep my insights? And then people at times feel that they leave retreats 
and often feel that they lose their insights, sometimes even just on the way to the car in the parking lot, that there's this transition that takes place and I've lost my insights. And often, or often there's a kind of process of erosion, you know, where we leave, we feel high, we feel clear, then gradually we feel that gets a bit worn away and more worn away, and then we feel like we hit the bottom and it's time to do another retreat. Because we have this association that that is where insight lies. That's where we actually find insight, or that's where we actually find depth. So, that process of erosion is something that's very unnecessary. Firstly, I feel it is a mistake to think in terms of maintaining. The moment that we begin to think in terms of maintaining calmness or maintaining insight, quite frankly, we have already begun to lose it. We have already begun to lose it. Because we are regarding insight or regarding calmness, or regarding stillness, as some kind of static object, or possession, that we have achieved, and so also that we can lose. Rather than really looking upon insight, calmness, clarity, for what it is, a way of seeing, a way of being, a way of living, that actually transforms our lives. If we look as a, at insight as a static object, we are bound to lose it. You know, and then sometimes you go to kind of, you know, gatherings of yogis, you know, who've been on retreats, and it's a little bit like sort of war veterans reunions, you know, where there's a kind of looking back on past retreats and what happened, you know, that in 87 had this fantastic insight into impermanence, you know, and in 1990, you know, there was that startling revelation about dukkha, you know, and then in 91 I had that wonderful calmness. And all this kind of recounting of what has gone by, of what has already passed, and yet a feeling of missing it. Insight is never lost. We never actually lose understanding. We can't actually lose insight. What does happen for different reasons is that which we understand to be true, the insights we have really seen, for different reasons, become rather buried beneath the weight of all patterns and all tendencies, beneath the weight, mostly, of desire and aversion. If we feel that we have lost our insights, I think the real question we need to be willing to ask ourselves is how much we actually feel willing to live in accord with what we know to be true. Because insight that is not applied is insight that is not liberating. Insight that is not applied is insight that is actually not transforming. 
Now we speak, you know, at IMS and on these retreats, we speak a whole lot about insight, understanding. It's the heart of this practice. It's the heart of this teaching. To see clearly, to understand deeply who we are, the nature of life. That insight is a key to transformation. It's a key to liberation. But sometimes insight does get endowed with a kind of magical association, as if insight has to be some dramatic revelation, you know, some neon light experience. Sometimes that is true. But most times, insight, deepening and understanding, is not a dramatic revelation. It's not some huge experience. Most often, it is a very quiet deepening and understanding through looking again and again and again at the nature of our lives, at the actuality of what is going on. Sometimes we don't even know we've had an insight until we go into a situation that previously has been very charged for us, and suddenly that charge is not there anymore. Insight is about paying attention, having clear comprehension about what moves us, the way that we respond, and what is possible for us, about what limits us, and the ways in which we might be able to let go. Insight is really being aware of the areas and the ways in which we hold and the ways it might be possible for us to open. And insight is actually an exploration of those possibilities. It is not just a sense of standing back and passively waiting to be struck by a bolt of enlightenment, but it is a way of engaging with our understanding in the manifold opportunities that keep coming to us. Insight is about looking at the ways in which we contract during the day and the ways in which we build constructed realities. It's about seeing through our looking the transparency of separation, the transparency of division, and the ways that it is possible to bring about the end of suffering, not at some future time, but in the moment we feel in contact with it. Insight is about really understanding the ways in which we might bring to an end the pattern of creating the conditions for suffering and pain in our lives. It's not enough to make a list of the kind of insights we should have. I think it is also important for us to really look at what is the purpose of insight? What is the purpose of understanding? Why why is it significant? Why do we dedicate ourselves to it? The purpose of insight is actually to be awake, to grow into the fullness of our own potential our potential for love, our potential for clarity, our potential for compassion. And how to walk in the spirit of those qualities in our lives.
the measure of our understanding is that it does touch and transform our world. It does actually touch and transform our lives. Insight that we speak of, and insight is actually not difficult. Insight is actually really quite straightforward and quite simple. It's the easiest part of transformation. Most of the insights we have in meditation, they're usually not new to us. We've had them before, we know them. When they come, something comes clear, we acknowledge that we've seen it before. What is, I mean, if we sit down and look at our lives for an hour, if we just took half an hour here and sat down and asked ourselves, what causes conflict? What causes pain? What causes suffering? What brings joy? What brings care? What brings love? It's not difficult for us to have the insights. It's so accessible to us. Our lives and our stories are constantly giving us these messages. But it is simply the first step. The insight is really the first step. The seeing is not always simple. But it is easier to see than to live in accord with what we understand to be true. And this is our greatest challenge. And this is where transformation actually lies. It is really hard and painful for us in our lives not to live in accord with what we know to be true. It is so painful for us in our lives when we find ourselves acting in anger or acting in frustration or acting out of rage and knowing the pain that that brings to our lives and yet not feeling able to step out of it. It is so painful for us in our lives when we find ourselves saying something to another person that we know is going to hurt and yet we would like to stop and yet the words are falling from our lips. It is so painful for us when we, when we strike out in anger or reject someone in anger and knowing that it's going on and yet feeling unable to step out of it. We know intuitively and we know deeply when we are not living in a spirit of peace, in a spirit of freedom, in accord with our understanding. Awareness is something that's really hard to get rid of. Once we begin to wake up in our lives, it is really, really hard to go back to sleep. And sometimes we don't always welcome that, we know. Sometimes it seemed that life was easier when we had no insight our life was easier when our awareness was not so acute, when we didn't have this little voice within us saying, uh-uh, you know, we don't need to be doing this. This is not who we are. We don't need to be acting this way. Where I teach in England, the retreat center is just on the edge of a village. And there's one store in the village. And people come on very long retreats. And once I was walking with this person who was doing, a, I think, a six-month retreat and got into this part of his retreat where 
Every Sudini would think about chocolate. This was after several months, think about chocolate. You know, and would try to let go of this thought about chocolate. I don't need chocolate. You know, let go of this thought about chocolate. Next sitting there would be chocolate again. You know, I'd like some chocolate. Knowing that this star was a 10-minute walk away. So he held back for some time, you know, let it go and let it go. And it seemed to grow in power, this thought about chocolate. So I decided, you know, well, I've really stayed with it for a long time now. You know, now I'm going to go and get this chocolate. And all the time, you know, all the way to the store, you know, was kicking himself, you know, I, what am I doing? I don't need to be going after this chocolate. I don't need this chocolate. I should be letting go. Got to the store, got in, you know, still this little voice saying, you know, why don't you just go back and sit? Instead, bought a chocolate bar. And of course, the man in the store knows the retreat center very well and says, uh-uh, you're not supposed to be here buying chocolate. <laughs> All the way back, kicking himself about this thought of buying chocolate. Awareness is something that is really hard to turn off. We know, actually, when we need to let go. The hardest part, I think, is trusting at times in our capacity to do so. The hardest time is trusting that freedom will actually come through letting go or that peace will actually come through letting go. Sometimes we have a lot of investment in holding on to things. It is no use to say to ourselves in our lives, you know, in moments of conflict, in moments of pain, let go, let go, let go. Really, we need to understand why we are holding on. What investment we have in holding on whether it's about power, whether it's about will, whether it's about protecting ourselves, whether it's about the desire to hurt another, to really understand why we are holding on, then I think we can begin to appreciate that letting go is not some kind of self-negation or self-denial. It is hard to find a situation in our lives where letting go inwardly of holding, of grasping, is not going to bring more freedom, more peace, more joy. There are, I think, three basic factors that inhibit living in accord with what we understand to be true. The most primary of these factors that actually inhibits the living of insight is the factor of lack of attentiveness. Very simple. A lack of attentiveness. We know when there's a lack of attention, those are the times when reactions find the deepest foothold in our consciousness. When we're not attentive, that's the time when we miss the most in another person when we tend to see more superficially. The second factor, I think, which inhibits insight is the desire and the craving for pleasure, the pleasant sensation and the pleasant experience. Because that desire and craving for pleasure, it also carries with it the companion of distraction, of the need for uh, 
to remain unchallenged, it carries with it the companions of aversion and of resistance to the unpleasant. It carries with it the tension, the desire for the pleasant, carries with it the tension that comes whenever we meet something in our lives that doesn't conform to what we want or what we think should be. The third is the factor of habit. Habit is a major inhibitor of insight and is a major inhibitor of our capacity to live in accord with what is true. Whenever there is habit, of course, we live on the most superficial plane of existence. We never appreciate uniqueness. It is hard for us to really appreciate the preciousness of each moment when we find ourselves tied up, overwhelmed by the habitual mind or by the mechanical mind. It's a story I'd like to read you. Conversation of an old man with a friend. He's saying, I have a friend, a woman I know already many years. One day she's mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I have insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That's how it should be. You cannot tell someone I know you. People jump around. They're like a ball. Robbery. They bounce. A ball cannot be long in one place. Robbery, it must jump. So what do you do to keep a person from jumping? The same as with a ball. You take a pin and stick it in. Make a little hole. It goes flat. When you tell someone, I know you, you put a little pin in. So what should you do? Leave them be. Don't try to make them stand still for your convenience. You don't ever know them. Let people surprise you. This likewise you could do concerning yourself. A part of habit, of course, is images. Images of others, images of ourselves, conclusions where we actually cease to see ourselves or cease to see another person because mostly what we see is our idea about them. Now those second two factors of habit and of the, the entanglement in the pleasant and the unpleasant, it would be very difficult for those two to exist without the first, without the lack of clear attention and connection. When clear attention is missing in our lives, our experience too often is feelings of being overwhelmed and overpowered, of being a slave to the circumstances in our lives, or being imprisoned by our own reactions and our own conditioning. That lack of clear attention creates, I feel, a sense of being alienated from the richness of what each moment offers to us. And when we are alienated from that, we experience a vacuum. And how do we try and fill that vacuum up? But with the pleasant sensation, the pleasant experience, the pleasant contact, the pleasant consumption. 
It's an exhausting path to live in a vacuum of alienation. It is truly exhausting because we are always living in a place of tension, of needing to get something or needing to get rid of something. And habit is the inevitable shadow to a lack of clear connection. We see it in our world, the way we act, the way we speak, the way we live, how easy it is for us to become habitual. Life is not habitual. The mind is. There is nothing in our world that is mechanical. But the mind becomes mechanical. A life of insight, a life is a life of sensitivity where there's a real willingness to pay attention, to acknowledge the preciousness and the uniqueness of each moment, of each action of each word, no matter how many times it seems we have experienced that moment before. No moment can ever be duplicated. To live in that kind of spirit, of course, is to live with mindfulness. That is what mindfulness is all about that willingness to forge bonds of connection again and again in each moment. There is far more to meditation than sitting on a cushion and having a quiet mind or accumulating hours of sitting. The spirit of meditation is about living with sensitivity. Think of moments of connection in our lives. They are also moments without fear. They're moments where we don't feel that there's something missing, when we don't feel afraid to be present, when we don't feel the need to fill up a vacuum in our lives, where we don't feel the need to flee from anything. And mindfulness requires an incredible amount of patience, a willingness to learn, a willingness to accept humility, a willingness to start again, a patience of staying with the difficult in a non-judgmental way. Mindfulness also requires compassion because a part of compassion is forgiveness that no matter what we have done, no matter what another person has done to us, where do we start anew except in the moment of being able to forgive, to let go? It takes remarkable compassion to be mindful. This moment has no judgments of us. Judgments are something that we bring to it. Mindfulness also requires passion. It does require passion, not passivity, but passion. An actual love of being clear, a love of being conscious, a love of being awake, a love of connectedness. If we truly have that sense of passion, I feel we're not willing ever to settle for disconnection for alienation or for distance. Mindfulness requires that willingness to learn, to start again, to respect, to appreciate, 
the possibilities that lie in our lives. The last thing I'd like to share with you, which <clears throat> to me so much illustrates the path of meditation. It's called an autobiography in five short chapters. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault, and it takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. I get out immediately. Chapter four. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five. I walk down another street. To me, this is so much what this practice is about. First, it seems we have to walk down the same streets and fall in the same holes. It takes us a while to learn that we don't actually want to be in those holes. At times, we still fall in the same holes. We have the habit of falling in the same holes. Then maybe we discover we don't have to have those habits. And maybe we don't have to fall in the holes anymore. It takes remarkable patience, remarkable compassion to keep walking down that same street, just to be willing to stay on the same street with the same holes. It takes remarkable patience and compassion, but we learn, and we begin to live in the spirit of what we learn. We begin to let go, and we begin to see how our lives really respond to that letting go. How our lives are actually touched by a greater sense of happiness and peace and contentment. May all beings live with serenity. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings live with compassion. could have a couple of minutes quietly together. <clears throat>